But I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It's an interesting verse today. Doesn't make a lot of sense when you first read it, but the more you look at it, it makes all the sense in the world. We'll get there in just a second. But for those of you that are new today, just say it's welcome. And we're going verse by verse to the book of 1 Peter. And one of the primary things that Peter is doing in this book is he's comforting these early Christians who are experiencing <clears throat> trials and suffering. And the first seven verses, what Peter does is he, <clears throat> excuse me, he's giving him all these reasons why they can greatly rejoice in the midst of their trials. He's been giving them all these reasons that they have, <clears throat> they can celebrate and rejoice even though they're walking through suffering. We're going to look at verse 8 and 9 today. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to give one definitive reason. He's kind of got to, got, kind of give us the last reason. He's going to move on, change subjects here in the next few verses. But this is this last big definitive reason why as a believer, no matter what you're facing in your life, you have a reason and a cause to rejoice. So let's read this together, 1 Peter 1.8. <clears throat> Peter says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, or though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now listen to this. In all the previous verses, he's given us these reasons why we can greatly rejoice in our suffering. And I told you that that means, that literally means that we have reason to jump for joy when, we're, when we encounter suffering. But here he uses a different phrase. He's summing it all up and he's saying there's something going on that gives you the reason to rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. That is a much higher expression of joy. It's a much greater expression of joy than to just greatly rejoice. So look at verse 8 again. He says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's a kind of joy that's so profound. Look at the word inexpressible. That's a kind of joy that's so profound that it leaves you speechless. That, that a joy comes over you that's so big and it's so profound that it just takes your breath away and, and you have nothing to say. It's inexpressible. I was thinking through my life. And I can only remember one time in my life where I experienced that kind of joy. And it went beyond, hey, I'm excited, I'm jumping for joy, and to the fact I was so overwhelmed <clears throat> that I was standing there speechless. One time I can remember it happen happening <clears throat> was when, uh, when I was going through cancer, and I got the call that I was cancer-free. And so I'd been spending several months not knowing whether I was going to live or going to die. We had all these tests. They were coming back inconclusive. had no idea. I had little babies at the time, <clears throat> did not want to leave them without a father, did not want to um, make my wife a widow at such an early age. Finally got my final round of tests, they call me and they tell me, they say, okay, man, we're, you're cancer free. And not only are you cancer free, we don't think you'll ever see this again. And I was in the backyard at the time, and it was a beautiful day, and my babies were all running around <clears throat> playing, and the phone rang. I could tell it was my doctor. He tells me that. We don't think you'll ever see it again. And in that moment, a joy came over me that was so profound. It hits me. The weight of it hit me. I'm not going to widow my wife. 
I'm not going to leave my children without a father. And that joy was so big and so profound, I didn't jump for joy. I just stood there in sort of a speechless awe. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying that there's something going on, there's something that has happened in your life, if you're a believer, that gives you a reason, it gives you a cause to have that kind of joy. In verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. But then he doesn't stop there, he says, a joy inexpressible and, watch, he says, and filled with glory. So he's continuing this description of the kind of joy we can have and he says it's it's going to leave you speechless but then he says it's it's filled with glory and what does that mean last week we talked about how at the day of the revelation of jesus you're going to receive glory which i talked about how you're going to receive your crowns in that particular verse peter's talking about a tangible reward that the lord's going to give you on the day of the revelation of the lord and that's going to be your crowns but here he uses a word for glory just a greek word doxology And he says, uh, so that's a word that means the highest level of praise. And so listen carefully, don't miss this. What Peter's saying is that as a believer, that when a trial comes into your life, there is a reason that you can stand there and be so utterly blown away with joy that you're speechless. And on top of that, when you do finally speak, that what comes out of your mouth is the highest level of praise to God. Now, look, let's look at verse 8 again carefully, because at the beginning of this verse, he tells us the reason. He says, I'm going to tell you the reason why you can experience this unbelievable, uh, incredible level of joy. Look at verse 8 again. Here it is. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Did y'all catch that? He's saying, here's the reason that you can, in the middle of suffering in your life, the middle of trials, you can have this incredible, overwhelming joy that leaves you speechless, and when you finally do talk, it's the highest level of praise, and it's this, is that you love God and you believe in God, though you have never seen Him. Now, why does Peter say that produces this incredible level of praise? Why does he say that's the reason? And I think what's going on here is that Peter is making reference to a statement that Jesus said to Thomas immediately following the resurrection. Now, you guys know Thomas. Y'all remember Thomas? Um, He had a name um, that was given to him historically. Remember what it was? Doubting Thomas. Let me show you why they call him Doubting Thomas. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Because after he goes through his doubting, Jesus says something to him that directly deals with what we're talking about today. John chapter 20, verse 24. So Jesus is risen from the grave. He's returned and he's appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. So the disciples see him and they go back and tell Thomas that Jesus is alive. But Thomas doesn't believe him. So let's read this. John 20, verse 24 said, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. Watch what Thomas says. He said, but he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, 
Thomas said, I will not believe. Now, I want you to look at that phrase, I will not believe, down at the bottom right there. <clears throat> that phrase in the original language is an incredibly strong phrase in the Greek. A more accurate translation of that would Thomas saying, hey, unless I put my hand in his nailed scarred hands, unless I put my hand in his side that's been pierced with a spear, I absolutely refuse to believe. And so Thomas is not really doubting. Thomas is actually completely convinced that Jesus did not rise from the grave. And he's refused to believe it whatsoever until what? What is Thomas needing to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Everybody look at me. He's wanting physical evidence. He needs physical evidence before he'll believe. He says, unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch him with my own hands, I absolutely refuse to believe that he's alive. A few days later, Jesus shows up. And he's going to walk into a room where all of them are there, and Thomas is going to be with him. Jesus walks into the room, and he goes immediately to Thomas. I love that. Even in our doubts, Jesus finds us. Watch what happens. Verse 26. He said, after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, so he says, peace be to you, to everyone, looks immediately at Thomas, watch what he says, It's, it's key. He said to Thomas, reach here with your, reach here with your finger. And see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Then Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So Thomas refuses to believe until he sees physical evidence. Jesus walks into the room, goes directly to Thomas, holds up his hands, shows him his side, and it was only then, after he saw physical evidence, that he believed in the resurrection. Now, I want you to watch what Jesus says to him next. In verse 29, this is critical. Jesus said to him, after he showed him his hands and his side, he said, you're my Lord, you're my God. Watch what he says to him. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus said to Thomas, that's great that you believe in me because of physical evidence. That's awesome. You should. But then he makes a fascinating statement. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Now, that word blessed, Greek word makarios, we've seen it before. It's in the Beatitudes. It's a word that means the highest form or the highest experience of human blessing. It's not a word that just means good things are happening to you. So somebody comes up to you and says, how are you doing? You go, oh, I'm I'm blessed. Makarios is a word that means the highest level of human blessing. The highest high experience of human blessing. And so Jesus says to Thomas, look, you believe, or you refuse to believe that I rose from the grave unless you saw me with your own eyes and you touched me with your own hands. And then he turns to everybody else and says the highest form of human blessing is for those who have never seen me with their own eyes 
and have never touched me with their hands and yet still believe. That's the highest blessing. That's who receives this makarios. They're not people that touched me and saw me, but never touched me and saw me and still believe. Now, here's why I told you that that's a fascinating statement. It's a fascinating statement to me. Because I think if most of us were honest, which one of those two would you say is the higher blessing? If you had the opportunity to see Jesus with your own eyes and to touch him with your own hands, to me, that's a pretty big blessing. I think most of us would say if we had the choice between to touch him and see him with our own eyes or to, or to believe in him even though we've never seen him and never touched him, we would say that the first is the greater blessing. But Jesus says that is not true. That's not the case. Those of you that have never seen and never touched, you have the greatest blessing. Now, here's a million dollar question, and that's why. Why is it a greater blessing to believe in Jesus and love Jesus even though you've never seen him. And I want you to listen carefully. This is critical. Don't miss this. Here's the reason it's better to believe in Jesus though you've never seen him and never touched him. Because believing in something because you saw it and you touched it is called knowledge. But believing in something that you've never seen and never touched is called faith. And the way that God has set this thing up is that you don't go to heaven through knowledge, you go to heaven through faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith, not through knowledge, through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Now I want you to think about something for a second. Have you guys ever stopped for a second and wondered, why doesn't God just appear? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought for a second, I know I have, have you ever just thought, why doesn't God just show up and silence the critics? He could do it. Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he just manifest himself and prove to everybody once and for all he's real? I've heard this so many times from atheists, from skeptics over the years. They say, well, if he's real, why didn't he just prove it and show himself? Well, Here's the thing. One day he will. He promised us that. We talked about it last week. There's coming a day. The trumpet's going to sound. The Lord's going to descend. He's going to have the army of angels with him. And in that moment, there will not be a shadow of a doubt that he's real. Talked about it last week. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. But before that moment, why didn't he just do it? Why didn't he just manifest himself real fast to everybody in the world and say, hey, I'm real? Here's the answer. <clears throat> because if he did that, then everybody on earth would believe him because of knowledge and physical evidence. And the way that God has set this thing up is he wants you to follow him and believe in him because of faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to the heart of God. And if you don't hear anything I say today, I actually want you to hear that. Because it's going to matter here in a second when I land the plane. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to the heart of God. All throughout the New Testament... 
Jesus drew these massive crowds to him because they saw physical evidence of his miracles. They saw physical evidence of his power. He healed people. He fed thousands of people. And these huge crowds gathered around him in church. He never really even paid much attention to them. In a couple of instances, when his crowd was at the biggest size, he's living the, he's living the Southern Baptist Church pastor's dream. He's got like 5,000 people around him, and he ran them off. He said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And everybody's like, I'm not doing that. And they left. So when people were attracted to him because they saw physical evidence of his power, he sometimes ran them off. But when he encountered faith, stopped him in his tracks and it blew his mind it made him marvel faith is the key that unlocks the door to the heart of God I want to show you one of the best places that you're going to see this in the Bible is the story, in, uh, the story of the Roman centurion and that's in uh, Matthew 8 5 if you want to turn there Matthew 8, 5. Jesus has entered the town of Capernaum. Huge crowd is gathered around him. This Roman soldier walks up to him and tells him that his servant is dying. He's paralyzed and he's suffering greatly. And asks if Jesus can heal him. I want you to pay careful attention to this story because it may be the best descriptive picture in the Bible of what faith looks like. So let's read it, Matthew 8, 5. It says, when he, talking about Jesus, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. And said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And so Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So let's t- get the picture in your mind. Big crowd. Jesus is walking in the crowd. A Roman soldier fights his way through the crowd comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I've got this servant at home. He's laying there. He's paralyzed. He can't move. And he's suffering greatly. And so Jesus looks back at him and says, okay, I will go to your house and I will heal him. And I want you to watch what the centurion says in verse 8. He said, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come, come under my roof. But only say the word. And my servant will be healed. And so Jesus tells this guy, I'll come to where your servant is and I'll heal him. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. You don't need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. So here's what I want you to do. Jesus, you're really, really powerful. You're God. You're awesome. So all you have to do is say the word and I know he'll be healed. I want you to watch Jesus' response in verse 10. Said, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. When Jesus heard those words by the centurion, he marveled. Now, that's not a word we say very often that we marveled. But when you look at the original language, that word marveled, it's one of those those times where the English just doesn't quite convey what the author was trying to convey. When he says Jesus marveled, that literally means that whatever the centurion said made Jesus jaw drop. That it blew his mind. That it astounded him. Think what in the world? What in the world did this guy do? 
Well, let's listen to what Jesus says next. Look at verse 10 one more time. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Whatever this centurion did, Jesus just described it as faith. And when he saw it, it made his jaw drop and it astounded him. It made him marvel. What in the world does centurion do that caused Jesus' jaw to drop and say, that is the greatest faith I've ever seen in all of Israel. All in the world the guy did will say, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word. I know it'll happen. Jesus, you don't have to come there and heal him. You just have to speak it. And I know it's going to happen. This is a definition of faith. We're going to have it on the screen here. Faith is if God said it, you believe it. It's maybe the best, most simple definition of faith you could ever have. Don't ever forget this. It means if God says it, you believe it. That is faith. Now let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not a lasso that you wrap around God's neck and make Him do what you want Him to do. That's not faith, and that's how it's being used in the culture today. <clears throat> kind of funny story, not super funny, but it's funny now, but I, there was a buddy of mine that, he worked at Dell in Austin, he was a, an amazing man of God, and he was next, uh, cubicle next to him, there was a woman that had a picture of a purple PT Cruiser on her computer. Y'all remember those cars, the PT Cruisers that came out? That was a big deal about 15 years ago. And this woman desperately wanted a PT Cruiser. And so my friend Michael said, hey, is that your your new car? Did you get one of those PT Cruisers? She said, no, I don't have it, but I have faith that God's going to give it to me. You hear that all the time, don't you? I have faith that God's going to give me a PT Cruiser. Well, listen, faith is not you putting a lasso around God's neck and saying, God, I have faith, so you better do it. Faith is when God says it, you take it to the bank. I got news for you, church. God never told you he's going to give you a PT Cruiser. But there's lots of things he does say. And when he says it, even though you've never seen evidence... You believe it, and that is called faith. We see the exact same uh, scenario, the exact same scenario in Genesis in the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, come outside with me. It was night. So he comes outside and says, Abraham, look at the stars. Now keep in mind at the time what God's about to say to Abraham. Abraham is old. He's an old man. He's about 100 years old. And his wife, Sarah, she's really old, too. Actually, she wasn't old. She was seasoned, right? (laughs) So God takes him outside and says, Abraham, even though you're really old and your wife is really seasoned, he says, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby. And he says, see all those stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Now, I want you to look at Abraham's response. You may have never paid any attention to it before, but in light of what we're learning today, it's critical. Look at Genesis 15, 6. It says, and he believed the Lord. And Abraham believed God. 
And it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, when God said it, regardless of the physical evidence, Abraham believed it. He believed the Lord and counted him as righteousness. In Romans 4.19, Paul is talking about this instance where Abraham believed God and he calls that moment something, he calls it faith. Let me read it to you. Romans 4.19, Paul's talking about Abraham and he said, he did not weaken in faith. When Abraham considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I love that verse because it said, God, God came and said, you're going to have a child. And the first thing that Abraham did is he said he thought about his own body, which was good as dead. That dude looked at his own body. He's like, I'm busted. I'm busted. I'm 100. Those days are long gone. And then he looked at his wife. And he didn't say it out loud, but he thought in his mind, she's busted too. But look at verse 20. He's thinking these things, but, verse 20, he says, but no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. There was no wavering when he considered the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. In verse 21, here it is. He says, fully convinced that what God was able to do what he promised. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever in the world God said he would do. Church, that is faith. Faith is when you you haven't seen any physical evidence whatsoever, but because God said it, you believe it. You take it to the bank. You build your life on it. It's called faith. Now, with that in mind, look one last time at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Look at verse 9. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's a quick message today. I'm going to land the plane with this. One of the biggest struggles that I've seen in the course of my ministry Um, and I've seen it so many times, I saw it this week in an email I got, I saw it last week in an email I got, saw it a week before that in a phone call I've got, and I see it all the time throughout the 26 years I've been in ministry. Most people won't admit it. Not everybody struggles with it, but here it is. One of the biggest struggles I see for believers, these are not non-believers, they're believers, is that deep down inside in places they don't like to talk about, they wonder if God is pleased with them. They wonder if God really loves them. They they hear verses about how God is pleased with us and He rejoices over us with singing and He delights with us and, and, and you hear those verses and you just don't know if God feels that way about you. Maybe that is you. You, don't turn there, I just want you to listen. I 
You go through, you hear verses like Isaiah 54.10 where God says, though the mountains may be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love shall not be shaken and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And you hear verses like that about the unshakable love of God and you say, God, I believe you have an unshakable love, but I'm just not convinced that that unshakable love applies to me. And the reason that you struggle with that is because you're looking at your own life. You look at your own sin. You look at your own shortcomings. You look at your own failures and you think, man, as long as I've been walking with God, I shouldn't struggle with that anymore. As long as I've been a Christian, I shouldn't deal with that anymore. As long as I've been walking with Jesus, I should have conquered that by now. And you look at your shortcomings and you look at your failures and you look at your own sin and deep down inside you think, I'm just not sure if God really has this unshakable love for me. I've talked to so many people. They sort of evaluate their own lives. They have a good list and they have a bad list and they look at how sometimes there's more stuff on the bad list than the good list and they begin to start asking themselves the question, am I really saved? And here's the thing, as soon as that doubt starts creeping in your mind, it's like, man, the last couple of months, the last couple of years, I've had more things on the bad list than the good list. And I know I walked an aisle when I was a kid, and I know I love God and all that stuff. But you would think at this point I'd have more stuff on the good list than the bad list. And right when Satan sees that in your life, he dives in and he, he takes off the hat of, of the liar and he becomes the accuser. And he goes, oh, you're still struggling with that sin? You're still failing in that area. And it just drives down deep in our hearts that we're not even sure if God loves us anymore. And we begin to question our salvation and all that kind of stuff. I hear it more than you could imagine. And if that's you, that's ever been you, or if that's you today, I want to ask you a really simple question. You've never seen God in your life, but do you love Him? That's a simple question. Do you love Him? Though you've never seen God, do you believe in Him? Though you've never seen Him. If you do, that is called faith. It's called faith. And even if it's a little faith, even if it's faith of a mustard seed, even if, even it's, a, if it's a faith that's wavering, even if it's a faith that's that's struggling, even if it's a faith that is barely holding on by a thread, if you love Him and you believe in Him, though you've never seen Him, that is called faith. And you have a reason to rejoice today with a joy inexpressible and full of glory for this reason, because Jesus sees your faith. He sees it. As small as it is, even though it's hanging on by a thread, I want you to know Jesus sees your faith. And when he sees the smallest amount of faith, it's so rare that when he sees the smallest amount of faith, it stops him in his tracks. It makes his jaw drop and it moves his heart more than anything else in the whole world. Some of you need to believe this today more than your sinlessness. Holiness is important, but more than your sinlessness, more than, than the greatest moments of, of, of obedience in your life, more than your spiritual perfection, if you have faith, if you have 
faith. That is the key that unlocks the, the door to the heart of Almighty God. If you love Him, you believe in Him, though you've never seen Him, that faith is all you need to rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory because Jesus said, blessed. Blessed, the highest form of human blessing are those who have not seen and still believe. So rejoice today, even if you're struggling, because God is pleased with you through faith. And I'll end today with this, one, one final reason. That no matter what you're going through, we've been talking about this for a month now. So many emails, so many calls saying, Matt, thank you. These words have meant so much to me because I am in this place and I'm struggling. And, and, and my friend is in this place and they're struggling. I want to end today before Peter sort of moves on and I want to give you one final reason that no matter what you're going through today, you can greatly rejoice and it's this. If you have faith today, if you have faith, if you love him and you believe in him though you've never seen him, here is the promise of this book, church, is that one day you will see him. One day you will see him. If you have faith, no matter what you're going through today, you can rejoice because there is coming a day where your faith is going to be made sight. And I love, I think this hymn, we're about to sing it. It says it so well. The end of our life, in that moment where we're finally face to face with Jesus. Can you imagine that? You're finally standing face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I love the song. It says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. But here's how he could love me. He took my sin and my sorrow, and He made it His very own. And He bore my burden to Calvary. And He suffered, and He died alone. And because of that, then with the ransomed in glory, His face I at last shall see, will be my joy through the ages to sing of His love for me. So I'm singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me.